Matthew 21 today. We'll do a Palm Sunday sermon. I haven't done that, I don't think, since we've been here. So I'm excited about that. Um, there's a little URC church out in Lyman that I preached at a couple of times. Seems like every time I go, I get sick right before and I have this terrible voice. I have that voice today, so just be thankful that you don't have to put up with it every week like they have with me every time I visit there. Hopefully I can make it through today. <clears throat> Matthew 21, 1 through 11, uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, you are good, and we give thanks to you. Your steadfast love endures forever. You have made a light to shine upon us, a true light, which gives light to everyone, uh, which is your Son, Jesus. He is exalted. He is ruling and reigning at your right hand. May we exalt him in our own hearts and esteem him as Lord and King, so that we might enjoy a life of blessing in his kingdom of peace. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word, if you are able. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. In First Kings chapter 1, David is... In decline, he's he's headed toward death. He's getting old, and he's no longer able to function as king. And he had promised the throne to his son Solomon, but Solomon's brother, uh, half brother, Adonijah, rose up and claimed the throne of David for himself. He took an aggressive posture. Uh, he pulled together a small sort of army of bodyguards. It says chariots, horsemen, and fifty men as sort of uh, bodyguards for himself. When David catches wind, actually Bathsheba and Nathan come to him and tell him about this. Uh, what, what do they do? What, do Sol- what does Solomon do? What does David do? Uh, do they take up arms against Adonijah? 
Do they try to slay Adonijah and his supporters? David simply says, Have Solomon ride on my donkey. Let Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest anoint him as king. No fanfare, no violence, just anoint him as king. While there were rivals to the throne... Uh, and one who took a fighting posture, one who would have killed Solomon if he had the opportunity, there was one man who had the promise, who was the king of promise, who had been promised the throne, and that was Solomon. He's the one man who had his father's blessing. I don't want to call it necessarily prophetic or even strictly typological, but there's an echo of this story in our story today, isn't there? It was the case in Israel that something is amiss here, considering God's promise to David that one would sit on his throne and he would establish the kingdom of Israel. It's not right that Rome ruled Israel. There are rivals to the throne of Israel, usurpers, who who assert their authority by violence and by might makes right. And there are others as well who would rule Israel by manipulation, by greed, um, the high priests, and so forth. And in this text, Jesus is publicly accepting his messiahship, his kingship as a divine right. And he declares himself king, the king who will sit on David's throne. That's what's going on here. He is publicly accepting his divine right and declaring himself king, the king who will sit on David's throne. Now, does he come with violence as one who would contend for the throne, fight for the throne as one of just many rivals? No, he he arrives peacefully. He arrives humbly riding on the foal of a donkey as the king of promise because he's the rightful heir. He simply has to accept his office. Therefore, in verse five, we read not uh Support your favorite contender for king, but we read, behold your king. Behold your king. Uh, Dr. Sproul calls this text a watershed moment, both in the life of Jesus and in the history of the world, because here Jesus takes his first step toward exaltation. His first step toward exaltation as the rightful heir to the throne of David over the kingdom of God. So by God's grace, we'll be encouraged as we today behold our king, uh, taking his first step toward his his rightful position on the throne of David, on which he now sits. And and we'll be strengthened in faith as we uh, also are assailed on every side by challengers to Christ's authority. Um. We are encouraged that Jesus holds the divine right to the throne and he will never be supplanted. The story begins um, in Matthew 21.1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Um, So now Jesus is coming down really from the north down south. He's coming from Galilee down the Jordan River Valley. He comes to Jericho, and from Jericho, they would head west, 3,300 feet up. Um, It's about a 14-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And as you're heading uh, west in that direction, 
Um, there's this kind of ridge right by Jerusalem, and that ridge is called the Mount of Olives. It's about a two-mile-long ridge, and on this end of that ridge are Bethpage and Bethany. So a couple of things are significant about Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. Uh, and the first is that Jesus has amassed quite a large following at this point in his ministry. People are following him from Galilee and from the towns that he's been visiting along the way. Uh, as we read in chapter 20, verse 9, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So it's not just Jesus in the 12 or Jesus in the 70, but there's a large group of people following Jesus. Uh, and it's also true, John tells us that there were large crowds when he arrives that come out of Jerusalem, but also much of the crowd is made up of um, Galileans, of disciples. And so the, the common point that preachers like to make is look at the fickleness of the crowd, how one day they're celebrating Jesus saying, Hosanna, and the next you know, few days they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. That may not be exactly the same crowd, so we need to pay attention to that. The second thing of significance about uh, Jesus' approach to Jerusalem is that Jesus was uh, steadfastly oriented toward Jerusalem for a particular purpose. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back to chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16. While you're turning there, Luke 9.51 says, uh, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some have, have spoken of it in terms of he set his, as, as flint. He set his face as flint. This is his one mission to head toward Jerusalem. <coughs> if you look at chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, in that passage, Peter, uh, for the first time, confesses Jesus to be the Christ. He says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus, well, he affirms his testimony. At this point in his ministry, he says, Don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. It's not public yet. He's still keeping it inside. Don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. And then he goes on in 21 through 23. It says, uh, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Here we see the the flint in Jesus. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind on the things of God. Not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus here, he won't turn to to the right or to the left. He steadfastly focused on Jerusalem. We start to get here a sense of the way that Jesus' kingdom is going to look. Perhaps it's not going to be that military conquest that Peter expects to be rid of the Romans. At least not in the way he thinks it should. Uh, Jesus goes on and he tells the disciples what it will mean to be part of his kingdom in verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever, who would, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Uh, as we go on through Matthew here, Jesus is performing more and more uh, progressively greater signs and wonders, kind of showing his, his divinity, his messiahship, but not outright saying it yet. And in chapter 17, uh, Jesus is transfigured before the disciples. And, and even there in verse nine of 17, he says, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So he's, he's still keeping this this closely guarded secret. And then again in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, uh, 22 and 23. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So you see, Jesus is, is continuing to tell them, or heading to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And one more text here on this note, uh, chapter 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. It's important that we understand that context because we want to understand what is Jesus' mindset as he's going into Jerusalem now? What, what is his goal? And it's clear his goal has been this whole time heading toward Jerusalem for a particular purpose. That purpose is to publicly declare himself as the messianic king, but also in a manner that's confusing and shocking, namely by going to the cross ultimately. He says, I will be given over, I will be mocked, I will be flogged and crucified, but I will be raised on the last day. So he's on a mission here. He's on, and the disciples don't quite understand it. So as they're pulling into town, he, he issues this unusual command. Again, in verses 1 through 3. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus said to the two disciples, saying to them, uh, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. There's really no shock here compared to the other miracles that Jesus did, but it's still a display of his divinity that he knew where the colt would be, where, where the donkey would be. And he also anticipates this kind of objection that they might receive. And he, he gives them this sort of cryptic passcode. In other accounts, we're told the disciples were challenged. Why are you taking the donkey? Um, and also we're told in those accounts that they promised to bring them back. But the disciples did obey this strange request without hesitation, trusting their master. And the passcode was, the Lord has need of them. The Lord has need of these. Now, it could be that these people knew who Jesus was. His fame was growing. He had been in the area before. Um, But the truth is that at this point, the the term Lord is not used of Jesus as much as it is later. And so probably this term, the Lord needs them, is he's talking about God. He's saying God needs these. God needs these donkeys for his mission. Which is an astonishing testimony to the purpose of this somewhat odd story in the life of Jesus. That this entrance into Jerusalem is by divine appointment. 
The Lord needs these animals. It's a divine mission. It's a divine initiative. Uh, very much like David, who placed his son on a donkey to, to demonstrate who his chosen king won. The father provides this, this royal steed in order that he might exalt Jesus as the rightful heir to the throne of his kingdom. <coughs> so whatever the rivals were um, to the authority of Christ, you know, the Roman uh, state, the Sanhedrin, there was really only one authority that had divine backing. We need to remember that as we encounter rivals to the authority of Christ on every day, whether it's the presumptuous magistrate, misguided church leaders, not to mention the worst offender, our own hearts. That there's one, there's only one who has divine backing, one king who has divine appointment. That's the, the Lord, the King, Jesus from Nazareth. Now, this was God's uh, divine initiative from well before the time of Jesus. Someone was asking me the other day, uh, how do we know there was such a thing as the covenant of redemption? If you're not familiar, in Reformed theology, the covenant of redemption is this agreement amongst the Trinity before all time, really from eternity past, that they would redeem a people. So they say, how do we know that if we don't have a record of the conversation? To me, one of the evidences, one of the many evidences, is to look just how airtight, how orchestrated redemptive history is. It's all unfolding according to a plan. Notice in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet 500 years prior. It's all orchestrated. It's all planned out. Sometimes I think we feel like God is kind of uh, flying by the seat of his pants, praying everything will work out, kind of like we do. Uh, But what's plain to see here is, is he's working out the course and flow of history precisely according to a pattern that he has designed. Such that he he fulfills this prophecy some 500 years after it's given. We think sometimes, woe is me, God is not answering my prayers. um, When the reality is that God's plan is so much bigger than us. He works generationally. He commands the flow of time and history. our, Our lives are just a whisper, a mist. We play but a small part in what is this this glorious, God-honoring drama. But it's a privilege to be cast, to play a part. Where the star of the show is not me, it's not you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. This prophetic word that's given is in verse 5. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Whenever a New Testament author quotes or alludes to an Old Testament passage, particularly in a book like Matthew that's written for Jewish minds, he typically expects the audience to think about the broader context, even if he doesn't quote the whole thing. Uh, And scholars generally seem to agree this is actually an amalgamation of two Old Testament passages, the first being Isaiah 62.11, where it says, Behold... 
the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion. So that's the part that, that uh, Matthew uses here. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. He goes on, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. You can see the hope in that passage. And then the main passage here that he quotes is Zechariah 9, 9. I'll read a little bit more of the context, 9 through 12. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Here's the part that's quoted. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. He goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare I will restore to you double. Now, there's a lot we could say about these two passages, but three three themes stand out to me from both uh, deliverance, establishment, and peace. Deliverance from, from the enemies, from exile, establishment as a nation, and peace, the end of conflict, the end of war. These are three things the people of God had longed for since they became a people. There are three things... That really a great and mighty king supported by the hand of God could bring. And there are three things that they had just a taste of with David and with Solomon, but only a taste. Deliverance, establishment, and peace. But on this day, in rides the king, really the true Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace. Not on a war horse, not in a chariot but righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it isn't that Jesus won't execute violence against his enemies. It isn't that he won't cut them off and destroy them and embarrass them. He will, but simply at this moment, it is his throne. It is his divine right He need not come contending for that which is his, but in this moment, when the timing is just right, he reaches out and lays hold to that which is already his, to his throne. So indeed, it is true. Behold your king. It's as simple as that. Behold your king. The crowd here has a sense of the significance of what's happening. Uh, Verse 7 And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And when it says he sat on them, it doesn't mean he somehow straddled both animals, which some interpreters have said that he somehow was on both donkeys. When it says he sat on them, it means their coats. He sat on the younger, the colt. That's clear from the other accounts from the Old Testament uh, passage. He sat on the colt. He could have sat on the older animal, on the donkey, 
And why was she there anyway? Why even bring her along? Well, first, there's a mother's calming influence. We know from the other accounts that this is the first time this cult has been ridden. I'm sure you horse people would affirm that to have the, the cult's mother there would be calming, especially considering the crowd. Um, also, I, I think there's something here. It shows Jesus is explicitly choosing the cult. He could have chosen the trained, presumably older animal, but he chose the cult. The significance of the cult, I think Zechariah 9.9 shows that part of it is humility. Um, it's not a great steed, a white war horse, not shadow facts, right? This is a, a cult of a donkey. It also, and I, I just wonder, it being previously unridden, unlike Solomon who rode on his father's cult to demonstrate, this is the new king, I am the new David. This is an unridden cult. And yes, Jesus is the son of David, but his kingship will be unlike any other previous king. So that's pure speculation, but I just wonder if that's some of the significance of a previously unridden cult. In verse 8, most of the crowd, it says, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Um, again, back to the Old Testament. In Second Kings chapter 9, uh, Jehu was anointed king, um, and he was skeptical of his appointment as king because Elisha and his essentially servant were were the source of his appointment as king. And when he came out of that room, when he was appointed as king, the people said, what, what happened in there? And he basically said, you know, you know that crazy guy, Elisha, right? He's he's crazy. So he was skeptical of his appointment as king, but they said, no, no, what did he say? And when he said, they anointed me as king, they jumped up and they put their garments on the steps for him to walk up. This royal carpet. That's what's going on here. This is a, a royal carpet for the king of peace. Now in verse 9, it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a, a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Originally meaning save or oh save. It's a cry for salvation. Um, but D.A. Carson says in time it became an invocation of blessing and even an acclamation. So it's, it's almost just a word of, of praise. Now their shouts of joy and acclamation come from a psalm. One we read this morning uh, for call to worship. Psalm 118. This is one of the Hallel Psalms. Um, Psalms 113 through 118 are the Hallel Psalms, which played a significant part in the Passover liturgy. So everybody, every Jew is familiar with the Hallel Psalms. This is 118. <coughs> I'll, I'll read uh, 118, 18 through 26, kind of give us some of the context. And it's uh, 25 and 26 where we kind of get this, this quotation from the people. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give them thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then here, save us. Hosanna is the Hebrew word. Save us. And even the Septuagint doesn't transliterate that word. It, the, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. It doesn't transliterate it. It translates it and, and like our English translations do. But that's the Hebrew word there. Uh, save us. Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray for success. And in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So clearly it seems the Jewish people at this time interpreted this psalm messianically because they add here, Hosanna to the son of David. They they add that in. They're interpreting, who is this person? Who is this one who's going to come to save? Hosanna to the son of David. And they're attributing that to Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Mark's account, they even say, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And in Luke's account, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is explicit. They're attributing this kingship to one man, to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, they don't understand everything yet. Um, They seem to understand that Jesus is coming, coming to bring deliverance, establishment and peace to Zion. Uh, But they don't understand what, what Luther would have called the theology of the cross. They don't yet understand how Jesus, how Jesus will bring deliverance, establishment, and peace. They don't understand yet how the borders of Zion are going to expand beyond their wildest dreams from, from the promised land to the whole globe. They don't understand that yet. They don't understand that David's throne will actually be in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But they do understand this is the one. This Jesus is the one. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He, he's the king of Zion. Now their shouts of acclaim, uh, they create a stir in Jerusalem. In verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, in Luke's account, and we can't pass this up, this is too good, we're told um, in, in uh, 1939, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And how does Jesus respond? Humble Jesus, mounted on a colt, how does he respond? You're right, it's too much. Well, y'all just go home now. It says, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus' kingdom just is. It's not dependent on the acclamation of the crowd. It's not dependent on the affirmation of the Jewish leaders, the approval of the Roman authorities, or even our own fickle hearts. Whether we attribute kingship to him or not, he is king. His kingdom just is. By divine appointment, it is. So that if the crowds were silenced, the very creation itself would rise up to the acclaim of the one true king of Zion, who arrives to bring deliverance, establishment, and peace to the people of God. This is a a story we all grew up with. 
I don't know about you, but I grew up in Sunday school making palm fronds out of paper, <laughs> reading picture books. We've heard sermons on it. And I think what I've failed to grasp over the years is exactly what R.C. said, is that this truly is a watershed moment in redemptive history and in the history of the world. This entry into Jerusalem really is the first stage in Christ's exaltation as the King of Zion. Uh, question 28 of the Shorter Catechism asks, Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? It answers, Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. Now, I think the catechism is missing something. Don't tell the Presbytery I said that. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but the order of exaltation here, I think, begins with the triumphal entry. This is where he first publicly shows himself as Messiah, where before he'd been keeping it secret. But he comes in peacefully, humbly, but claiming his divine right. From there, then he achieves peace and victory on the cross and in rising from the tomb. After that, he ascends on into heaven, which we've seen through, through Acts, is not just a, a floating away, but is a coronation as king. After that, then he sits, that we have the session of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. This is the Psalm 110 reign, where Jesus is steadily defeating his enemies. And then finally will come the final judgment. That's, that's the order. The triumphal entry, peace and victory from the cross and the tomb. Ascension is coronation. Jesus' session as he defeats his enemies. And then final judgment. That's his exaltation. So where do we sit in that order of events? The second to last one. The session stage. The stage of Psalm 110 where Jesus is putting his enemies under his feet. That, that's the stage of his exaltation in which we live. And so the, we have the blessed benefit of hindsight. We, we have a view of the cross and of the tomb that the people who were rejoicing on this day had, had no idea about. And as we have seen in Acts, Jesus' foot is, is on the enemy of the serpent, uh, the neck of the serpent. And he's steadily applying greater and greater pressure through the preaching of the gospel in the world. And so now we await his coming in judgment, in glory. On that day, he will finally cast all of the enemies of Zion into the pit of hell and bring us final deliverance and establishment and peace. So I think we can take for ourselves this, this call, this exhortation from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold your king. Amen.